Welcome back to Talking Acoustics. Uh, we've got a bit of a different episode this week. Instead of an interview, it's a recording of a presentation that Sir Harold Marshall delivered uh, at a colloquium on presence in Auckland uh, in July of this year. The talk is titled The Oblique Imperative, The Acoustical Dimensions of Presence. Um, this came at the end of a two-day um, colloquium or um, conference uh, discussion uh, between a whole bunch of attendees including architects, philosophers, uh, composers, dancers, um, designers, a uh, few acousticians um, and it was really all centered around this idea of presence. Now to give this um, talk a bit of context I'll paraphrase uh, Hans uh, Gumbrecht who is one of the uh, one of the people sort of exploring this idea of presence. Um, he is a professor from Stanford. Uh, there's a book he's written called Production of Presence, What Meaning Cannot Convey. Uh, and he was at the colloquium as well. He says we live in a world of objects and on one hand we interpret meaning uh, of the object world and on the other hand we have a tangible relationship to objects um, a relationship in space um, and that that physical presence um, and he talks about the idea that in Western philosophy is really focused on uh, that first idea of interpreting meaning um, and not so much that uh, exploration of the tangible relationship we have um, in presence. It is a bit of a philosophical uh, concept to explore on a, on a podcast about acoustics, but I found it a really interesting um, area to look into in the last couple of years. Um, and I think ultimately it might have some real implications about how we design spaces um, uh, to bring forth that presence effect. Um, anyway, we'll get on with Harold's talk. Uh, it is a talk uh, which has some slides, so there's some reference to those as we go through. Uh, and also the audio quality, um, I just recorded it from the audience, so uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not the best, but I uh, hopefully you can um, catch it all, um, and I hope you get something out of it. The story begins in 1955 as part of my honours project in the School of Architecture all those years ago. <coughs> I, I took a special paper, believe it or not, on acoustics. <laughs> in the course of that, I was required to write an account then known about concert hall acoustics. Concert halls were fairly distant from me in 1955. The essay was annotated by my tutor, F.W. Sager. He was generally known as Eric, and I've recently thought Fred Eric, and that is why he 
he was a sonar specialist who was also a musician. And he wrote, sooner or later, you will have to discover what is meant by presence. <laughs> it was a completely new concept for me. 63 years later, we may be homing in on the answer. <laughs> About 28 years ago, I committed a, a heresy. I was at an international acoustics conference. It was actually the, the uh, International Congress on Acoustics. And uh, I stated that physics was necessary but is insufficient for the design of a concert hall. Yes, that took place in Belgrade in 1989. <coughs> More than physics is required for the design of concert halls. And recently, as some of you will be aware, I have extended this thought to talk about the more that is required. Pardon me if I snuffle a little, I'm running on paracetamol. <laughs> <laughs> my, my lecture uh, two or three years ago was titled Presentational Rhetoric in the Design of Concert Halls being there. And in this I discuss communication, both verbal as discourse, and presentational, that is requiring experience and not fully accessible to the abstraction of words. And of course that is the way arts typically functions. And meaning flows from this non-verbal communication. We both know from Professor Gumbrecht's production of presence what meaning cannot convey and what has been said here on numerous occasions in the past two days that presence is a matter of experience being there. That a spatial relationship with the world and its objectives is needed and presence appeals principally to the senses. In the correspondence that, which followed between Professor Gumbrecht and me, it revealed a common factor that presence in our very different fields uh, is the common factor be bet between us, us and led to this colloquium and the wide range of disciplines which are represented in it. <coughs> I want to start with the images of three rooms with which I've been intimately involved, each is unique and each has an immediate and visible presence, even in a two-dimensional image. Each speaks, speaks of gathering and listening and I believe music. So each exemplifies non-verbal rhetoric. First is the Christchurch Town Hall. It is unique for its huge lateral reflectors. 
these are designed specifically to bring lateral reflected in sound energy to the listener's ears. Why lateral? Because you've got two ears and they're on the side of your head. And because the sound is slightly different on this ear from this ear, your brain interprets that as a sense of envelopment. Being surrounded by the sound. So, uh, this room was the first room in the world which was designed specifically to enhance the amount of lateral sound at the listener's ears. And in so doing, it produced a unique space. Sir Mark Warren was the architect and opened in <coughs> 1972. It's worth noting that the cultural immersion of the day in Europe would have prevented this room being designed there. The second uh, is more recent, the Guangzhou Opera House. Architect Zaha Hadid, who since has died sadly, it is unique for the asymmetry, asymmetry of its design, but you what you don't know is that this was first explored in this school of architecture with a student of mine, uh, her name was Rebecca Post, and she's gone on to become uh, a quite well-established architect in Germany with her husband, who is a Lufthansa pilot. So that's just a little bit of gossip. Was actually a photograph taken at, in a hotel 
had just proposed the unique idea that the concert hall should be bicameral. That is, had two chambers, not one. An outer chamber within which the reverberant sound field could develop, and an inner chamber controlled by reflectors, the seating area and the balcony fronts, which would produce the very gratifying acoustical sensation of the early reflected sound, and of course primarily, primarily from side. My sketch, which I did at that dinner, that at, at after lunch, shows the ease with which architects can communicate to one another. The, the drawing is far from perfect, but it does provide uh, the idea of the nested spaces. It provides beautiful architectural ambiguities between the spaces which happen in fact and you can you can see all that in the sketch and then you can see it in the architect's render of the competition drawing you see that this grows directly from my my sketch what is done what this doesn't show is the line that, that indicates the way the audience is going to enter the space through the outer volume. And that's the origin of these beautiful ambiguities, which the following slide shows in fact. <coughs> yes, you can see it. This, so this is on the way in to the auditorium you're looking down the length of the outer volume and with a glimpse through into the intimate inner volume. Of course, the, the reflecting clouds in the previous slide uh, are arbitrary at the stage. They haven't been designed yet. They're, they're an idea of the way that the clouds could support the distribution of the early reflected sound. And in answer to Jean's question that you may have noticed on that earlier slide, that Harold would have worked, uh, this from the music critic of The Guardian, one Tom Service, following the performance of Pierre Boulez's Réponse, uh, in the hall. Here's what he wrote, which is an upbeat to two other things. Firstly, the acoustic of this concert hall is up there with the best I have ever encountered, and it is certainly the finest of any recent hall I've heard anywhere. The Philharmonie is a space that allows all of its 2,000 listeners to feel in contact with the subtlest sounds the musicians can make. I, I took that as a, a, a wonderful accolade. And uh, Simon, Sir Simon Rattle was, was more direct. He just said, 
Well, that's where I've talked mainly about the visual presence of these rooms. I should now like to say something about the contribution sound itself makes to presence in a room for music. And it's worth noting that since the 60s, starting in, at Göttingen in Germany, there's been about 50 years of research about preferred conditions in music rooms. Broadly speaking, we have two groups of information. There's room acoustics and there's the reflective design process. Let's start by listing the importance preference factors, the things that we aim to produce. Most have metrics in the back, background, and it's our task as acousticians, of course, to optimize these throughout the space. Uh, this is what I think of as the nuts and bolts. These are contributors to presence, and they can be engineered. We know how to do it, <coughs> and we do it all the time. So we'll start with <coughs> musical dynamics. The tutties should never overload the room, but the pianissimo must fill the space like a whispered blessing. And this leads sometimes to the most intense silence you'll ever hear. Clarity is preferred by most, so long as it's not at the expense of the other factors. And the Christchurch town hall is interesting in that it was the first room seating more than a thousand, which could have the prom which gave the promise of, of uncompromised multiple functions. You could speak, I found, unamplified, to an audience of two thousand. <clears throat> in a reverberation time it should have defeated the purpose completely. As recently as just before the earthquake in Christchurch, Bryn Terfel demonstrated this specifically during his recital in Christchurch Town Hall. And it's one of the reasons that the, the hall is now nearly completely renovated. They've recovered it vastly more money than it cost originally. <laughs> you know, the, the entire project, believe it or not, was three and a half million dollars. That's about the acoustician's fees these days. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was quite extraordinary. Uh, <coughs> uh, so we, we talked about the musical dynamics, clarity, Reverberation <coughs> is the deep signature of the room and its presence. You might be interested to know that my PhD thesis was entitled The Architectural Significance of Reverberation. So I have been thinking about this for a bit. Envelopment has been exhaustively studied since 1967, when Mark Barron and I showed its dependence upon lateral reflected sound. And finally, 
research has filled in the requirements for musicians to play together, hearing and enjoying music making in real time. <coughs> and then in parallel with the This, of course, cannot be engineered. There's a continuous interchange <coughs> between the physical science and the reflective mind. That arrow is meant to indicate the continuous interchange between the design and the physical science up to and through commissioning. It doesn't just happen once over afternoon tea. <laughs> it goes on for months and years. And I've chosen just a few pictures here that show some more of the nuts and bolts. But finally, the whole coheres to form the room with presence as a gift. And it's a gift which takes in my view, as one of the siblings of love and grace. It is also certain that presence demands a legible architectural conception which has been informed acoustically. That's the joint architect-acoustician task as exemplified in the three examples I've given. First of all, uh, there's physical modeling, the more nuts and bolts, if you like. That's a one-tenth scale model of Paris. Leibniz, who said that about 
presence then in concert halls is certainly multimodal and multisensory. I conclude that while it may be desired and can be engineered in its parts, it cannot be engineered as a whole any more than grace or love can be engineered. I am personally as content to discover presence in my halls as I am to be a recipient of grace. But always it's in the context of the nuts and bolts. This is not a new idea. It is nowhere more evident than in the logical necessity for the incarnation. In, <laughs> in which the nature of the first cause outside space and time became known to the human reflective mind within space and time. The creed has it, it incarnatus es de spiritu sancto ex Maria Virgine et homo factus est and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary and became human. On planet Earth indeed, and at the place of nuts and bolts, or rather, in the Christian tradition, the place of hammer, hammer and nail. Let's finish with what Mozart made of this wonder in his sublime mass in C, C minor. This is another exemplar of non-verbal communication. I'm only going to play uh, part of it, just the last half. And I invite you to, before we start playing this, just to think that this is Mozart's take on the wonder of the Incarnation. It's the Incarnation in relation to what we now know about this is so huge, so vast, if you just allow your mind to think about all the pictures you've seen around the physical universe while the soprano is singing this aria. See what I mean? Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out some more information on Sir Harold, you can check out the Marshall Day Acoustics website, uh, which has some contact details. Uh, You'll find that at marshallday.com. Sir Harold is also due to speak at the Australian Acoustical Society Conference in November this year in Adelaide. If you want more information on the podcast, uh, to leave feedback or information on previous episodes, you can check out talkingacoustics.com. Thanks for listening.